Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, December 27th, 2021, and we're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero. Today, I get the privilege of introducing our guest, coming to us all the way from the great state of Georgia, a teacher, a scientist, and an all-around fish fanatic. The first guest on this show that I've had the pleasure of meeting outside the confines of a Zoom call with the Georgia DNR's Freshwater Biodiversity Program. Please welcome Dr. Brett Albanese. Thank you very much for that really nice introduction. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. And happy holiday darters to you, Brett. <laughs> We're very excited to have you on today. Happy holiday darter. Happy Halloween darter. Happy Hanukkah darter. Happy Christmas darter. They're all names for darters in Georgia. Yeah, there's a pretty big diversity down in those waters. That freshwater biodiversity is pretty incredible. Yeah, so we have 45 darter species in Georgia, which is more than some states have fish species. So This is the first darter that we've had on the show. Can you talk a little bit about what their role in the ecosystem is? Where are they living? Yeah, great question. You know, darters as a group, there's about 222 described darter species. It's the second largest family of fishes in North America. They're not in Alaska. There's only a couple species that get to the Rockies. Most of them are down in the eastern U.S. with the peak of diversity in the southeastern U.S. Most of them don't get very large, just a couple of inches. There's exceptions to that. There's four main genera of darters, and I'll just talk about each one because it helps talk about the habitats and, and the way they live. But one is uh, Crystallaria, which is a really rare translucent one. Don't need to really talk much about that one. I, I, it doesn't occur in Georgia. The next one is Amacrypta. Those are the sand darters. And we actually just discovered our first species of sand darter in Georgia in 2014 in the Flint River. It had never been found there before. And these guys are also very translucent and they have their eyes in the top of their head and they bury themselves down in the sand. That's one of the reasons they're very hard to catch because <laughs> they can just shimmy down in there. That's a small group. Persina is a relatively diverse genus and the Persina are the larger darters that are not as brightly colored. They generally have a pointed snout. They have retained a small swim bladder. So they actually can be off the water column. And so when you're snorkeling for, let's say with a tangerine darter, it might come right up to your eyes. You know, it might come right up because it's off the bottom. Whereas Ethiostoma, the biggest genus with literally hundreds of species, those are the small ones. They've lost their swim bladder. So they're down on the bottom, darting around. They've got large pectoral fins, which they kind of use to jockey for position behind a flow refuge or, you know, to get away from a predator or something like that. So, you know, the role in the ecosystem, they're eating insects or other invertebrates, but primarily aquatic insects, like a lot of our native stream fishes. The reproduction is amazing. This is one of the cool things about darters. Different subgroups of Ethiostoma have very different spawning strategies from egg burying, which is just like it sounds, the female shimmies under the water and the male and they deposit gametes in the substrate. That's the most primitive strategy. Holiday darters are egg attaching darters where the female will just drop one egg at a time and stick it to plants or a rock, something like that. Egg clumping darters, this is a really cool one. This is when the male will guard a cavity under a rock, okay? 
the female will invert and lay her eggs in there and they'll be in a big clump and the male will guard that. In a lot of species, multiple females will go in there and also add eggs to that, to that clump. And so they're not really protecting the babies, but they're protecting the eggs from, from predation. And this is, um, this is pretty cool. I have a rap about that one. I'm just like, you, know. <laughs> you have a what? I got a short rap about that, that, Oh, spawning behavior. Um, we'll have to hear that. Yeah, if you want. Can, can we get that recorded? Just, yeah, just we're gonna, to have them. We'd like um, to hear that. And, and then um, there's the final one is the egg clustering, which is very similar to egg clumping. But um, what happens in this case is that the eggs are laid up singly, like in a line. And so they're not a big clump. And what that means is if an egg gets fungus on it or something, the male can remove that individual egg. So it's more advanced, you know, nest guarding and, and parental oh, wow. care. So, but cool. so pretty complex uh, reproductive behavior. All right. So importantly, let's hear this rap. All right. So this is just a small part of a much larger rap, but it's just about the wounded daughter Ethiostoma vulneratum, <laughs> which is in the subgenus <laughs> Nothenotus. So it's um, <clears throat> egg clump, egg clump under a rock in a river. The DNR likes to stock. It's a Nothenotus calm vulneratum. If you see its red spots, you'll want to mate them. <laughs> awesome. I'll show you the fish. <laughs> So I'm in Alaska and I've only ever seen photos of these fish and they're absolutely lovely. Could you describe for someone who hasn't seen them what they look like? And are they that colorful all times or just during certain times of year? The ones we're talking about today, genus Ethiostoma, they are small ones. And as you uh, alluded to their color patterns, they're beautiful. They're, They're well known for their sexual dichromatism, the males being much more colorful than the females. And that is, you know, generally at its peak during the the spawning season, which is typically, but not always uh, in the spring, some species spawn throughout the summer. And a lot of times, even though outside of the spawning season, you'll see color on them, like in the late fall, for example, they'll start coloring up. It's driven a lot by water temperature and and food as well. Um, So, but they definitely, you know, reach their peak colors when, when they're breeding. So what what does a beautiful spawning male holiday daughter actually look like? Yeah, so they have these green bars, Christmas color, all on the sides, okay? They get longer as you go back towards the tail of the fish. In between those bars, they have these red spots or half bars and a lot of red on the belly. belly. So that's your, that's your green and red. Uh, in the middle of the anal fin, there's a, a little horizontal red stripe in the breeding males. And that's, that's a really, yeah, that's a really great characteristic when you're trying to do surveys for them. And we actually do quantitative surveys for these things while snorkeling, because we don't want to harm them. But when you're doing that, you want to make sure you're identifying them correctly. And that little red there on the anal fin, if you see that, like, oh, it has to be 100%. None of the other fish around here get that. A lot of people always say, Arters, they're kind of like the warblers of the, of the fish world. So. Lots and lots of them. They're small. Looking <laughs> some of those bird people. The fish, yeah, I always think about that. The fish are oftentimes just as beautiful or more beautiful than the birds that people see very commonly. Definitely. I'm curious, ta- talking about birds and this kind of sexual dichromatism that appears not just in fish, not just in darters, but in lots of species where you have the really bright colored males and more drab females. What is the reasoning behind that? Why would this evolve? Yeah, well, so this is sexual selection. And, you know, the male maximizes his reproductive success by 
mating with as many females as possible and attracting as many females as possible. Whereas the female, she maximizes her reproductive success by choosing the best males. And so color pattern is a way to find that male that has high fitness, high health, good condition, probably has good sperm that's going to benefit her, her offspring. So is it kind of like, because you think about trying to survive and being able to pass on your genes and seemingly these bright colors aren't going to help you avoid predators or find food because you might be warding them off. Is it kind of like, ah, I, I don't even need that. I'm a good enough swimmer. I, I got good enough genes that even with all this bright coloration, I can survive and move on. Is that kind of the thinking along it? I think that's that's definitely something I've heard uh, described before. You know, it's like there's a trade-off with these characteristics. Like you said, they make them more vulnerable to predation. Yet, if they're good at hiding from that and, you know, evading that and you know, despite their high, high uh, good color patterns, then, then yes, I think that would be another indicator. So if I wanted to get in the holiday spirit and go see some of these fish in the wild or maybe see them at the Tennessee Aquarium or, you know, are there are there ways people can experience these fish? I mean, I know we've talked about microfishing a little bit in previous episodes, too, but what are some ways folks can go experience these fish in real life? Yeah, the Tennessee Aquarium is a phenomenal freshwater aquarium. I highly recommend going to see it or the Georgia Aquarium. But Tennessee Aquarium uh, is focused a lot on, on southeastern fishes, and they do have darters. I don't know if they have any holiday darters. I don't think that they do. A great way that anybody on this listening to this right now could Google Georgia Biodiversity Portal. This is our website where we have information, photographs, range maps, species accounts for all of our rare species, whether it be fish, mussels, crayfishes. And you'll see lots of pictures of holiday darters. Now, if you want to go like for reals, You'll have to uh, get a wetsuit, mask and snorkel, and go up to the Conestoga River right as it leaves Georgia the first time coming out of the Kohata Mountains. There's a place called the Snorkel Hole. It's technically right on the Tennessee line, and it's public access. And the best time to go, well, you could go in May if you were crazy and wanted to freeze, or you could go in June. I'm from and, Alaska. Okay, yeah, okay. you go in May. <laughs> Maybe April then. You might see some stuff that no one's ever seen before. Uh, but uh, I usually go in June. That's a time when the water's a little bit warmer, but the fish still have their colors. And, and you're going to see like, and you might see 30 species of fish there in one snorkeling event if you're really lucky and really work at it. And walk in the river, take a left, go upstream, come up to this. You'll, you'll be swimming through a pool. You come up to this riffle habitat. And there's a lot of predators there. And usually the holiday darters and all the darters are up in this kind of shallow spot. And there's a really cold spring coming in right there. And so when you have that situation, you'll see that fish will extend their spawning season a little bit in that area because the temperatures are right. So that's a way you can, you know, go in June and, and see them. Um, there's other. That's awesome. What kind of water temperature? What kind of water temperature are we talking? It's probably like at that time, like 15 to 18 Celsius, not too bad. It's like for you, it's probably like, you know, what you take showers in for an Alaskan. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Just go out in the snow. I noticed that it's not listed under the Federal Endangered Species Act, but it is listed as a Georgia a state endangered species. And I'm curious what that listing means for conservation and allocation of funds and also what it means for people hoping to possibly go out and interact with them in the snorkel hole observing them or possibly if you're fishing up there and you end up catching one, what that means. Yeah. So 
just starting with the federal thing, like you said, they're not federally listed. They were petitioned for federal listing a few years ago, and we actually got a grant to help assess their conservation status. The Fish and Wildlife Service, who is an awesome partner for us in the Southeast, providing lots of grant funding and, and collaboration on projects. But for whatever reason, they decided not to list it. But it is protected under Georgia's Endangered Wildlife Act, which means you cannot handle the fish. You cannot kill it. If you wanted to do research on it, we would permit that, you know, with specific guidelines. So we don't want people to just not learn about them. And certainly snorkeling, no problem at all. You wouldn't want to like catch them with a, you wouldn't want to microfish for them. And you wouldn't want to microfish at all in the upper Conestoga River because there's lots of imperiled species there, including federally listed ones. And there's potentially some, some yeah. risk there with a little tiny fish like this. Yep. So. so that's a good point. If you are going to microfish, you should be aware of what species are in the area. And if, yeah, if you're going to be targeting something that's obviously common or not listed, make sure you know the difference and make sure you know where the the listed species are. Great. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Could you talk a little bit about kind of where, what kind of habitats they're found in and what the water, what the water's like? Yeah. So talking about darters in general, like free-flowing stream, streams and rivers is their typical habitat. There are exceptions. There's one that lives in swamps, uh, but that's an exception. <laughs> but most of them like swiftly flowing waters. Holiday darters in particular, they occur in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Georgia, so North Georgia, and they're in these really nice, clear streams, high gradient streams, not super steep, but you know steep enough to have some good flow, pretty cold water, rocky, and they're really kind of they're kind of in a sweet spot in those river systems in the sense that if you go too far up those mountains, the streams will be too steep, too shallow, too swift, maybe too cold, not enough food. If you go further downstream as these rivers leave the Blue Ridge and enter the Ridge and Valley, which is an adjacent landform, the gradient slows down and they become slower moving, more turbid rivers. They're a lot more impacted by you know environmental degradation because they're not in protected forested areas, holiday darters just don't survive right there. So they're kind of caught between these two uh, extremes, like many, many uh, mountain fishes are. So they're somewhat confined. They're not moving too, too much, like some of the other species we've been talking about. There's very little known about their movement behavior. And if you look at a map of their distribution, you'll see that they are pretty, there's five different populations. And some of them are actually in the same river basin and would be connected by connected river systems, but it's a long journey to disperse between those, those habitats. So uh, to the best of our knowledge, you know, with the exception of rare dispersal events, they're confined to these headwater reaches and, and the populations don't mix. So for all the folks listening out there, is there anything you'd like to tell them about, you know, why it's important to care about freshwater biodiversity and darters in particular? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, for the general public, sure, go snorkel for them, get excited about them, learn about them. That's great, but not everybody's going to do that. So big picture, the things that we need to do to protect these species, save them from going extinct, are the things that are going to benefit our quality of life. We all want clean rivers and streams. We all want good drinking water quality. In fact, there's actually a paper that was published on holiday darters, a guy named Greg Anderson out of UGA and some co-authors. He looked at a, a model uh, looking at their distribution, related it to landscape scale factors, 
And one of the most important factors in his model was percentage of forest cover. And his model predicted as forest cover declines, uh, so, so does holiday darters. And why is that? Well, forested watersheds generally have better water quality. If you have forest along the actual stream itself, you're getting a lot of thermal protection from the sun, you know, just keeping those streams cool. Fish need these trees just as much as the birds do because they're basically providing shade. When their leaves fall off, that's becoming a food source for invertebrates that they feed on. They're a living filter that are trapping sediments and contaminants, fertilizers, herbicides, and washing directly into the stream. So that's a super important thing for a lot of fishes, but holiday darters in particular. And a lot of these streams have trout in them as well. And that's one of our messages to people is like, well, you might not care about the holiday darter. I mean, if you saw one, surely you would care about it, but you might not even know about it. But if you want to protect your trout fishery, you have to protect those riparian forest habitats, a diversity of tree species, but also an herbaceous layer as well, which intercepts a lot of runoff, uh, you know, flowing over the ground. So generally... Yeah, if we can if we can save the holiday darters, we can have a better existence for for human beings. Perfect. Well, thanks for joining us today. Yeah. This was great talking with you, and yeah. really appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Brad. I really appreciate it. We hope everybody gets out there and enjoys all the fish. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore production management by Gabriella Montaguin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.